Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Ladies and gentlemen, a very special edition of Chewing the Gristle. We have Jason Isbell, the one and only singer-songwriter, Grammy Award winning. Let me tell you, he is a guitar-playing fiend, one heck of a nice guy. Stay tuned, Jason Isbell. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Another exciting episode of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We've got a magical individual in the house today, Jason Isbell from beautiful Alabama originally. And of course, Grammy Award winning singer, songwriting. But I want to tell you, you're a guitar playing fool, my friend. How you doing? Man, thank you so much. I'm doing well. You know, it, it means a lot to hear that from you because I have I have seen you play uh, all over the place, all over the neck, up and down, top and the bottom, and it's, man, you're great. You're a killer, dude. You're you're a, you're a wizard. So oh, I'm, well, coming from you, that is high praise, my good man. I should say, happy belated birthday. I guess yesterday was your your birthday, birthday if I'm not mistaken. Turned yeah. forty two yesterday. That is crazy business. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I saw Ooh, your wife made a very interesting cake that she you. Did. She did. You know what's funny is. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, my dad, we had a big birthday party with all my buddies, and my dad wanted to get me a cake uh, with a girl in a bikini on it, you know. And when I was 12, my dad was 40. No, when I was 12, my dad was 31 years old because he was oh. 19 when I was born. So there was still a lot of still a lot of learning happening on everybody's part. And sure. uh, uh, dad got me this cake and he just got it from the local grocery store, like the Piggly Wiggly down the street. And they they did not know it was for a 12-year-old boy. And they made it for an adult. And the cake was extremely adult. And my <laughs> dad, he went in, he saw the cake and he said, this is for my for my child. And they said, you got an erotic cake for a child? And, <laughs> <laughs> and then said, no, it's this 12-year-old boy. He's not, but you've got to cover this up. So they had to put uh, icing over all of the parts of the cake that, you know, <laughs> would be suitable for a, 12, a house full of 12-year-old boys. And so I got this cake for my dad, and it's been uh, every birthday it comes up. And finally this year, my wife made me a cake in tribute to that original uh, erotic cake, which I told this story last week to a friend of mine because I was explaining – I've been watching a lot of Guthrie Govins videos just right. to like erotic cakes. Yeah, yeah, his band erotic cakes. And I was like, well, you know, I've had an erotic cake or two in my life. I know all about that. And then this happened, and it just made my day. It was it was a really good birthday, and I I found the match to my um, I've got a, a, a early '65 candy apple red Telecaster. And uh -huh. I found a strat that matches it. And I got that this year for my birthday. So I was very happy. It's it was hard to find one because all the strats that I was finding had they had transitioned the pit guard, you know, so they had the white pit guard rather than the mint green. Right, right, right. And I finally found up in Maryland uh, at Garrett Park, I finally found a, a, a 65 that had that green guard still. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a happy man. 
Awesome. That's a good yeah. birthday present, as well as the mammalian tort. Yeah. <laughs> both great. You know, I would have been happy with either one, and I got both. <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, you post some wicked guitar videos on, on the old Instagram. And what's, I guess what's interesting is that, you know, not that they're mutually exclusive, but, you know, you're such a great singer-songwriter, but you, you've totally got the guitar bug as well. And and not just in the collecting of, but, like, learning new things and really, I mean, I see those things, I'm like, no, he's on, he's on the path big time. And I'm just wondering how, was that always the case? Or was is it something more that you're like, you know, because a lot of guys get to a certain point, certainly your level of success and so on and so forth, especially as a singer-songwriter, I would say, you know what, my chops are good. Yeah, away we oh, go. Uh, and then, yeah. but you're you're constantly adding new stuff to the soup, which is awesome. And I'm just wondering, was that always the case? You know, it 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 was just because I enjoy it so much. You know, and, and probably the same thing for you. Like I feel like I got so lucky um, to have something that I just love to do, and it never wore off. It never got. You know, I never fell out of love with the instrument and right. never never had to tell myself, you know, to practice really, you know, unless I was playing a gig and there was some songs that I didn't really like that I had to learn, you know. Right. That, but I, I never have to say, you know, you need to sit down and play guitar today. That's never happened to me because it's just, I mean, I'm still just as crazy about it as I was when I was 12, you know. Luckily, though, now... The singer songwriter, the songwriter part of me, uh, can actually purchase instruments for and give them to the yes. guitar player part of me because Beautiful. if I was just a guitar player at my level, you know, I'm not the best guitar player on my street, and there's not many houses on my street, but I live in Nashville, you know, so it's like I, I, I'm very grateful to the songwriter for getting the guitar player the tools that he needs to enjoy himself. That's and and you know, that even made me more excited when it was like, oh man, I can actually get these sounds that I always wanted to get, you know, what's better than that, man? There's, there's nothing more fun, nothing more fun. And that's the thing. I mean, it's really, it's, I love playing all the time myself. I mean, I get up, the first thing I do is I, well, coffee first and then, and then guitar. There's, there, there is kind of a hierarchy in that regard. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I almost feel, I mean, all things being equal, you know, health and all that other kind of stuff during this pandemic. But I, I, I feel sorry for the normies because huh? I, I'm okay with just sitting and playing guitar all day. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Me too. But even, even like pre pandemic, I was like that, you know, right. when I had, when I had a, a child, you know, she's she's five now and she's the only child that I have. And, you know, I from the start, I thought, man, I hope there is something that she feels a, about the same way I felt about playing guitar all these years. Because that's been the trip to keeping myself sane and, you know, my career. Like, I didn't start writing songs until I'd been playing the guitar for years. And so when I started writing songs, I had somewhere to go. You know, I knew, go to the six, go to the two, go to the four, you know. I knew how to make melodies because I'd been sitting practicing leads and all this. And, and it informed everything that I did. And it's just been like a passport to the whole world for me. And, and, you know, for her, I don't, it doesn't have to be guitar. It can be anything, but I just, just, if there's just one thing that you never get tired of, you can really, really get a lot out of it. Right. Cause you never get bored. I'm never bored. <laughs> me neither. Me neither. You know, me neither. Never. Um, Cause there's still stuff that I can't, 
do, you know, and, and that's the thing about it. The instrument was just so, I think it's the best instrument essentially because it is the smallest instrument that you can make full chords on. Right. I think, I think that's it. It's the only one that you can take with you. You know, the, the other ones that are that size are either lead instruments or they're limited, like a ukulele or a tenor or something. The guitar is the only thing you can make like a, a, a 13th chord on and carry to your buddy's house for a party, you know. And right. it, so it's the, it's the best. It's inarguably the greatest instrument of all. And it Absolutely. never... There's no limit, you know, there's no limit. There's still, Guthrie's still learning things today, probably, that he couldn't right. do yesterday. So it's, it's, it's great. It's just great. It never ends. The quest. Yeah. <laughs> well, what started you off? I mean, what were your initial, because you were born in, in 79. I, yeah. Actually, that, that's the year I started playing guitar at age Oh, 20. really? Yes, 1979. That's why I'm so far behind you, Greg. Oh, I'll tell you what. I didn't start early enough. I had to <laughs> the late seventies, a squalid time. But be that as it may, um, I started buying guitars in the late seventies. That's what I wish. Because yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I I think about that. I mean, even when I was like, you know, in in high school. So I went to high school from 1980 to 84, and you know, you could go into stores and. You know, and you could get an old Strat. I remember going in and these buddies of mine, you should, you should really buy an old Strat. You know, you can get one for about $1,200. Well, $1,200 to a 17-year-old might as well be 10000 You know what I mean? $1,100? You got to be kidding me. And, of course, now you're like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, most of my friends are, are uh, well, not most of them, but a lot of my friends are older than me and they're musicians and they remember those days. And there's definitely a distinct line between the people who kept their guitars right. they bought in the seventies and eighties and the ones who didn't like, you can just tell just by looking at their face. When I show them a guitar, you can tell by their response if they kept their guitars from the set <laughs> or not, you know? Um, and then there was guys like, like uh, my buddy, Jeff Hanna, who's got the nitty gritty dirt band. He, uh, he he's he's got a Les Paul that he's had for all these years. You know, it's it's a it's a burst, and he worked at a guitar shop back in the day and did repairs. So you know, he got this burst in in the seventies. You know, you were cooler if you had a modified Les Paul. You know, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh no! Now you know he's got everything back to the original way, but you can just tell he's like, right. why? Right. Why? Right. Do we, why do we do that? Um, but yeah, to answer your question, so my, my grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher in Alabama and, um, he played in church and they had the kind of Pentecostal church where they had drums and bass and, and guitars and, you know, PA and all that, like rock and roll church. And, uh, and so he spent a whole lot of time with me teaching me to play and he played most instruments like, um, uh, acoustic instruments he played fiddle and banjo mandolin and sang old gospel songs and and so he taught me to play rhythm guitar to accompany him you know i would play rhythm guitar and he would play a lead instrument and then at the same time my uncle his his son my dad's brother played electric guitar in uh in cover bands around town and, and with his buddies and stuff and so he would teach me the the rock songs and uh and it it started when i was like probably seven or so um you know and and immediately i was just smitten with it you know from from the beginning um so that's all i did for hours and hours and hours every day you know 
And is this down, it was in Alabama where you grew up, correct? Yeah, it was. Yeah, in Little uh, Green Hill, which is really close to Muscle Shoals. And then when I got older and actually got out and started playing music, I ran into a lot of the people who had played on those Muscle Shoals recordings and, and got really close with them and, you know, wound up doing some studio work there in town myself and, you know, learning how to play with bands and with singers and record and things like that in, in the Muscle Shoals scene. So very, very lucky, very lucky. Years ago, I recorded a record down at Johnny Sandlin's place, Duct Tape Music. You ever done stuff with Johnny? I, I, I'll tell you what I did with Johnny. I, when I was about 18 or 19, um, me and some friends recorded some demos in the basement of uh, Scott Boyer's house. Scott, who used to have a band called Cowboy. Yeah, Cowboy, yeah. Uh, yeah, we were, I was sleeping on Scott's couch. And uh, we, in Scott's basement, put together a, a demo tape, and I took it to Johnny. And uh, Johnny said, well, I don't know what I can do with these songs, but if you need work, uh, you can. I can hire you to clean out my garage. So me and my girlfriend at the time, Shauna, Tucker, who we wound up getting married and, and divorced and, you know, we're friends, but uh, she's a bass player. We went out and we cleaned out Johnny's garage for a couple of days in the middle of July. And Johnny sat with the little misting fan, you know, in the folding chair. And we would bring something out and he would say, oh, we'll keep that. Oh, we'll throw that away. We'll keep that. We'll throw that away. But the things that we found in that garage, we found the little uh, Super Beetle, Fox Super Beetle pedals from, uh -huh. from the amps that Greg and Dwayne had bought together you know they had belonged to them and i told johnny like if you just let me keep one of these you won't have to pay me for cleaning your garage he said no no i send everything to galadriel everything i find of of Dwayne's, i send to his daughter uh, and so that's, that's where that went I said, well that makes sense but we found backup reels uh uh tape reels in that garage that were just piled up in the corner we found like the backup to blue sky we uh, found a version of Mountain Jam that was longer than any version anybody had heard. It wound up getting uh, mixed and mastered and released. We found a bunch of Eddie Hinton recordings that nobody had ever heard before. You know, tapes that Johnny wound up cooking and mixing and, and putting out later on before he passed. So it was, you know, in hindsight, at the time it sucked because I wanted, you know, to make a record. And, and uh, this producer, famous producer, had me cleaning out his garage. But now I see that it's like way better that I wound up cleaning out his garage because all those things got unearthed, you know, it was amazing. As you're telling that story, I'm thinking of Johnny, and we were recording this thing down there, and, and one of the tunes was one of my more wacky instrumental ones, and you could tell he wasn't feeling it. So he he went into the main house, and Jeremy Stevens was the engineer, right? And so he's recording, and this tune's this tune's insane, and, and you know, definitely not up Johnny's alley. But we went to have lunch, and we came back, and there was a note that Johnny had written to me on like a napkin, and he said, Greg. Satan called. He said, good job. <laughs> like, I'll take that as a compliment, John. Thank you. Those old, du those old dudes would, would not mince words. You know, I, like I worked with Rick Hall some in uh, Muscle Shoals and he would, you know, we were in there like teenagers um, learning how to work in the studio. We weren't cutting like master takes or anything. We were just learning how to record, you know. So he put together a band of young people trying to sort of farm us into session players. And he would still 
send you out. You know, if you couldn't get the part fast enough for him, he would say, go out in the hall and get the next guitar player and send him in here. He would make you do it, you know? So you would have to go out and say, oh, Rick said I couldn't play this part. He wanted you to go in, you know? And we were kids. Like, right. Brutal. Yeah. And he would say shit like, uh, like uh, he was, he was John Paul White who had uh, the Civil Wars. Um, they, oh, they yeah. Had, yeah, so John Paul uh, was in there recording one day and and cutting some demos, and Rick came in and listened, and he said, I like that, but, you know, in my day, we had to record hits. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to have the freedom that you kids have now. Just uh, <laughs> so is that whole area still just... I mean, the music legacy down there is so strong, and obviously, you know, there's still a lot of those players, if they're still alive, that live around there. Is it, but is it still just like a, a hotbed of musical talent down there? Or most of the people kind of bolted at this point and gone to Nashville, or you know, they bolted and then they came back in a lot of ways. I mean, when when it got as expensive and and uh, sort of built up in Nashville, a lot of people started moving back down there. My manager just bought a place down there in Florence, actually, just just recently. Um, but uh, there's still just an incredible amount of talent. And, and they've got a lot of people are recording at the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio again um, because they put together a group and, and sort of renovated the place to historic specs and, and got it looking like it did in 1971. And, you know, even put paneling on the walls and the old ceramic ashtrays out with, you know, fake cigarette butts in them instead. It's, it looks great in there. It's really cool. But... Uh, but yeah, they're they're working on you know tending to the legacy down there, and and there's still young people coming up all the time that can play and sing that that I've not heard of before. So it's it's a good thing. Now, how about you know from a recording point of view? Do you do stuff in your house now, or do you have that kind of a situation? Or do you go places you like to go? Do you go down to Muscle Shoals now, or do you kind of mix it up depending on whatever? Until the until the pandemic happened, you know, it was always drive to a studio. Um, and still for a lot of things, I, I go to, you know, if I'm making a record, full-on record, I'll go to RCA usually um, uh, or the Sound Emporium here in town. But but our barn, uh, when, we, when we bought the place, there was a big barn on the property that the guy just used for like storing his boat or cleaning deer. He's a deer hunter, you know, and we just gutted the place out and turned it into kind of a looks like a German rock club in there. We put a stage and disco balls and lighting and stuff in there. And, and now my wife's got a pro tools rig out that she's been running. So since the pandemics happened, we've done quite a bit of recording out there. I'm, I'm not a pro tools guy. Um, I just never got into it. Um, you know, I, I can't really engineer or I can, I can produce if I have a good engineer, but, um, but you know, I, I, I'm not a pro tools guy, but my wife knows how to work pro tools. So I've been doing some sessions for other people, you know, producers will send stuff in, I'll play guitar on it, um, or sing on it or whatever out in the barn. And that's, that's been nice. I've enjoyed doing that. It's nice to be able to work from home, especially now. Right. Exactly. And there's really, uh, really no end in sight, really. I mean, I know that, uh, a tour was being booked for, my thing back in Europe and uh, we're supposed to go this past fall and they, well, let's move it to a year later. I'm like, that's not going to happen either. <laughs> I mean, we're in the same boat. Yeah. We're in the same boat. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, I just, I have to just let myself be all right with not knowing, you know, right. or it will drive me crazy. Um, 
but yeah, most of my time, you know, if, if I'm not with the five-year-old, I'm, I'm, you know, sitting in the floor with either with, if she's asleep, I put the headphones on and play through the Kemper or the, you know, little milkman amp or something. Uh, but if she's not asleep, it's loud. You know, I got the combos in the house and then the big marshals and stuff out in the barn. <laughs> the, other, the other day I was feeling like just having a bad day, you know, I, I'd gone back and watched some live videos and that brought me down cause I just missed playing live so much. So I just went down the, out in the barn and, and plugged some stuff into the Marshall and just turned it all the way up. You know, the, I think the bass knob is the only one that I ever touch. On there. <laughs> Everything else stays on 10. And when I, when I got it, we were doing, Dave Cobb was producing a uh, a version of The Chain, the Fleetwood Mac song. My wife's band, The High Women, recorded for a movie called The Kitchen. And uh, it came out last year. And and I I went in and did the Lindsey Buckingham solo at the end. Uh, you know, with I took the burst in there and, and uh, just dimed the amp all the way across, you know, and then started from zero on the on the volume knob and slowly worked up till it was right. That's what you do. You know, that's what you do. Exactly. And I stood in the room and I wore headphones, but they were for my own protection, really. Right. You know, and you can hear when he punches me in because you hear that, you hear the pickup you know, squeak right. a little bit. And it's just like, oh, my, it's just heaven, you know. So I played the solo and everything was on 10. I go back the next day to work in the studio and the engineer, the assistant engineer, uh, had had marked the knobs on the amp. They had spiked the settings so we could get back to that tone and they were all on 10. <laughs> so the tape on 10 on every knob. So I've still got the tape. I've, I brought the amp home and I kept the tape and that's where that amp lives on 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You're the, the sound of a, of a real old Les Paul through a mark. I mean, it's, that's the thing. I mean, on yeah. so many records and, uh, and tell us a little bit about how you ended up with Ed King's, guitar how that compares to other guitars that you may have had that were old i don't know if that's your only burst or if you've had other ones before no, it is. that's my only real one yeah i had reissues and stuff but uh that was that was the first and i never planned on having one you know because they're just so ridiculously expensive now right. it and i still can't it doesn't make sense now you know i'm not going to stand here and go well it's worth that it's nothing is worth that you know right. how is worth that that's it you know uh but uh uh, the Carters got it at Carter Vintage in Nashville, and Christy Carter called me and said, you know, if you don't mind, would you come in and demo some of Ed's guitars? Because Ed had passed a few months earlier, and uh, Sharon, his his widow, who was a big guitar person herself, she ran the Dallas Guitar Show for a while and, you know, just knows, knows guitars real well. Sure. He had brought a lot of Ed's collection in to Carter, and uh, and to, to sell. And I went in to demo the sweet home Alabama Strat and a couple other things. He, he had some really good stuff. He right. had maybe the best Mary Kay Strat I've ever played or heard. And he had a whole bunch of gold tops, like, you know, gold on gold, gold tops, you know, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And I saw the red eye there on a stand while I was playing something else. And I said, is that, is that really that guitar? You know, um, and they said, yeah, that's that's it. And I said, well, can I play it? So that's why you're here. And the little voice in my head that Dave, Dave Cobb had told me, those those people are not your friends. They might go to your birthday party, but don't be <laughs> fooled. You know, they know what they're doing. They call you to come demo some guitar. Uh-huh. Right. And, and, 
it just as soon as I played, before I plugged it in, it just did the thing. It just resonated in the way where you're like, oh, no. Five seconds ago, I was okay. Everything right. was okay. And now I have heard this guitar. and I'm You don't cool. know until you know. And then it's yeah. too late. <laughs> and then it's too late. And you're done. Of course, it didn't enter my mind at that point that I would own a guitar like that. Just not possible. Not feasible. You know, and I've got a 61 335 that is just really, really great and inspiring. And it sounds right. And it does everything it's supposed to do. So I thought, I'm fine. So I got a stop and got a bottle of water and got some gas. And then I got lost on my way home from the guitar store. And this is a trip that I've made more than, you know, any trip. That's what I do. I drive the guitar store. So I got lost. And I was like, why am I lost? And then I got home and I found myself sitting in the garage with the car running. And I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to get carbon monoxide poised. Why am I just sitting here in the car staring out the window? And then that night I was trying to go to sleep and I was just, why? I was like, I can't stop thinking about this guitar. So I called my accountant and she was like, no, you're an idiot. That's ridiculous. There's no way. No, no, nobody should pay that much for a guitar. Don't do that. And I said, okay. So I called my manager and I said, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to come up with this amount of money. I'll play whatever birthday party, private party, whatever stupid corporate, whatever, you know, but I need to buy a guitar and I need exactly this amount. And she said, we'll do it. We can do this. Let's, let's do it. And I said, all right, call my accountant and tell her that. I'm calling her back. <laughs> so I put them in touch with each other. And that year, sure enough, I played a bunch of weird, weird birthday parties, but it was, it was worth it. It was well worth it. That is crazy. Nothing in Russia, I hope. <laughs> I told him, I was like, no Qaddafi's, none of that. You know, nothing, nothing that's going to, yeah, be like a terrible murderer person. But as long as they're cool, I'll play right. the word. Yeah. 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 Certain yeah. litmus test had to be uh, at hand. Yeah, got got to do that. Yeah. So... Did you know Ed was a, it was a character? Did you did you know Ed much? I didn't know Ed. I was around Ed some, but I was not close with Ed. You know, um, uh, but I was a big fan, big fan of the way he played. And you know, those songs were the first; those, those were the first things that I learned on electric guitar. You know, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I remember I was down in Nashville once, and I got together with uh, with Ed, and we ate at this really good Thai restaurant with old J.D. Simo, and we were feasting. And he uh -huh. told uh, he told this funny story about when he was in the Strawberry Alarm Clock, uh, they were doing shows with Hendrix, and I'm like, I, I am I, I'm just complete fangirl when it comes to anything Hendrixian. I'm, oh, yeah. so, and he was all too willing to divulge. And so um, he's like, I was in this room, you know, just kind of playing my guitar and they whisked Hendrix in. He was just about to go on stage and he's changing these strings. And as he's changing the strings, his roadie comes in with like one of those vendor packs, like at a movie theater of, of uh, uh -huh. Snickers bars and opens it up. And while Jimmy is frantically changing his strings, this guy's taking whole Snickers bars and just shoving them in Jimmy's... <laughs> Before he went on stage, I was like, I don't know what that story means, but I'm going to tell it to anybody who will listen. Yeah, that's, amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Snickers bars. Wow. Yeah, you know, I heard uh, somebody had a story about, I think it was the pop singer Carly Rae Jepsen had a story about being on a flight with Seal, and he ate a whole loaf of white bread, just one slice <laughs> at a time, you know. <laughs> That's bizarre. Now, whatever it takes, I guess. <laughs> I've heard a couple of a couple of Hendrix stories um, 
my favorite one being from David Hood, who was the bass player in the in the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, and, right. and he's a close friend of mine still. Um, uh, one of my favorite people on earth. But he saw Hendrix without knowing what he was going to see, and just that alone, like you know, he was in the UK. I think he was over there with Steve Winwood doing something for Traffic, or you know, he was he was over there playing bass and. And they said, we got to go see this kid play the guitar, you know, and, and they went and David didn't know what he was getting into. And he said it just it terrified him at first because the, the volume and the sound and what was coming out of the guitar, he said that didn't understand it. And, and then it sank in what, what he was witnessing about halfway through the set, you know, and that that's where I really would. If I could go back to any spot, I want to hear Hendrix without ever having heard of him before, you know. That right. Was, that would be the trick. Like you go from Hank Marvin to that, you know, right. like, Oh man, you would think the world was coming to an end. Like when, <laughs> you know, when Stravinsky premiered the ride of spring and, and the conductor had to sneak out the back window because everybody rioted and tried to burn the place down. Like, right. You would think <laughs> something satanic. This is, this can't be right. This doesn't line up with human sounds. Yes. Yeah, that's what I Something is afoot. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So what other guitars have you fallen prey to? Um... You know, I'm I'm not a collector. Uh, I mean, I might be a collector, but I don't say I'm a collector. I because I, I use them all. You know, I put frets on them. Right. I take them, play them. You know, I, first thing I do, even like some people would probably hate my guts for this, but like for Father's Day, my wife got me a a '53 Telecast last year for Father's Day, and this thing it it's it's the cleanest one I've ever seen, and you know, just spotless i mean it come under somebody's uh bed you know this guy who had worked at general electric i still got all the receipts and everything oh man you know he had worked at ge and bought it in 54 in may of 54 um and it was it was new and still been on the rack you know it's still got the halo the finish has still got the little white around the edges you know right right it's just nuts and and uh, the key greg the key is in the case the key to the thermometer case oh. Oh. is in the case. Just that key is like, this is like finding the hope diamond. This is right. unbelievable. Um, that's so, insane. Yeah, it's nuts. So the first thing I did was I took it to Glazer and got frets on it, you know, got the neck angle put right so those screws wouldn't be stabbing me and it would sustain and stuff. And right. It had the original frets, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't made for bending strings. They were right. made for cowboy things. So there's no way I could play any kind of modern style with those frets and and Glazer took it apart neck had never been off the body before and uh you know when I went back in to pick it up he he'd refretted it and set the neck angle and stuff and he he said now now the body on that was uh 55 and the neck uh, was a 57 is that correct and I said what and he said uh well, when we when we took it apart you know that's what that's what it said on the inside and in pencil and I was like no, that's not supposed to be the case at all. And Glazer, so hold on a minute. Let me go back and ask. And they, it's, it was the wrong, it was not my guitar that they were talking about. It was like one of 
Paisley's or, you know, uh, somebody that they were working on. And he hadn't done that on purpose. Like he didn't do that to me intentionally, but I had to wait like half an hour before I drove home because it scared me so bad. Right. Uh, you know, but no, it was, it was, you know, TG 53, like it's supposed to be, but it's still just, you know, it, that one really has, I mean, it's as good an example of what it is as the red eye is of, of a Les Paul, you know, it's just, it's exactly right. It's, it's, it's one you can't hide. And and I know, you know, this as a player of Telecaster style guitars and 53, there's no, you're not hiding, you know, you got a board, you got quiet pickups. What you play is what you will hear. There's no just making cool noises on that guitar. Right. And it is, it's like a piano. It's just, it's just unreal. And you know, the neck pickup sounds nice. I can get enough treble out of it to use it. Um, and yeah, I, I leave my tellies in that weird old uh, winding with the with the with the cap, you know, with the dark. Oh, setting. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like to run those through a fuzz and gate it, and uh, and then play without vibrato. It sounds like a Nord lead. You can do that uh, if you gate the fuzz. You can make it sound like a synthesizer. You know, it's, it's the only use for that position I have found is that. But it yeah, cool. Tellies, I love tellies. Yeah, I, I I don't know, maybe five years ago now, I um, a 53 that was, you know, refretted and it was a spray over and there's a little hole under the pick guard, but the pickups and everything are original and and I wanted it in the worst way. And this I was like, I can't, I can't, really can't spend that kind of money and yada, yada, yada. And then uh, finally, I just, I know what I, I was in back in town here and a buddy of mine who had just bought a 59 Strat said, I bought this guitar, but I don't want to play it. You you play it, have fun, gig with it, and, and, and see what you think. So I got that guitar and I started gigging around with that. And I thought, well, will those little frets work for me? And will, you know, the noisy pickups work for me? And the answer was yes. So the next time I went out to Colorado, I was like, I'm getting that guitar come hell or high water. So I got rid of a bunch of different stuff and to get that guitar. But I, what's so odd about it is, and I'm interested to, to hear your perspective from having one that was you know that's way clean is it the guitars are so broken in and you know what most people think of as telecaster sounds is like this bright you know really kind of you know blizzard of nails ice pick in the forehead type of thing they're real mellow sound even the bridge pickup it's a mellow attack and it's so woody sounding yeah and it's just it's a totally different beast it is and it's more it's more acoustic in a way, you know, it, it reminds me more of an acoustic guitar than a lot than a lot of Les Pauls do, or even than Strats do, um, because you do you feel like you're hearing the construction of the guitar and you're hearing the wood. And you know, I don't know if that's what time has done to those bridge pickups. Maybe that's what it is, you know, because like in the Red Eye, the, the neck pickup is overwound by probably six hundred wines but the magnet has reduced strength over the years and so it that's what makes that middle position so magical on that guitar and you know time does crazy things you know it 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 causes uh condensation in in potentiometers and increases the amount of treble that gets let through in ways that you can't replicate you know and i've got one of those uh uh custom shop uh uh, Blackguard, I think it's a 53. Right. Um, Angela, I saw you demo one of those. One, did, did the one you demo have a gigantic neck to well, offset? Some of them do, yeah. I mean, the, the 53 is not as usually as big. Usually it's the <clears throat> the no-caster U is kind of their biggest profile. It's just well, Sasquatchian. This, this might be the neck that they put on this one, but this was one that was like, 
maybe six or eight years ago. Matter of fact, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, uh, it's this one. It's one of oh. Dale Wilson's. So it's this guy. Oh, I remember that guitar. Yeah, and you actually demoed one almost identical to this one uh, for Wildwood. But this neck, holy cow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you pick up this and then a gold top feels tiny. Right. It's gigantic. And I wonder if it's because, you know, normally you have to shim to get the neck angle right for a Bigsby. I wonder if somehow that gave them enough meat for Dale to be able to put that neck that way without having to put a shim underneath it. Ah, interesting. I don't know. That's a guess. I could be, I could be way off, but um, I'll tell you what old Dale knows what he's doing. He makes he surely knows what he's doing. He his really tellies are knows. delightful. But this, this bridge pickup here, and I know it's encased with a whole bunch of metal, you know, but it is so much brighter than the actual 53. Right. Isn't that crazy? And it's crazy. And it, it can't be from how they did it because Fender, unlike Gibson, was keeping up with everything a little bit better back then. They know how to replicate those pickups right. you know, pretty close to identical. So it's the same pickup. It's just so much brighter. And I think that's just time. I think time has mellowed those old ones out, you know, whether they were being played a lot or not. Absolutely. It's crazy. Now, how about for a live rig? You know, you hear, <clears throat> you know, Folks in your position, they do these big tours and you find out no one's got an amp leading on stage. Everything is direct and the amps are just for show. And what, what is your approach for, for live performance? Are you cranking on stage or is it is is everything kind of toned down and you're using the ear goggles? You know, I, I use the in-ears. I love the in-ears um, as a singer. I do right. not love the in-ears as a guitar player, right. but... You know, I I know if I look down and I'm hitting a note, I know what note I'm hitting. My voice, I can't. I got to hear it to know if it's there or not. Right. So, but I hate the plexi glass uh, because it makes everything sound out of phase. I'm getting bounced back, you know. So I use those uh, baffles on the mics on all my amps. Like uh, I think Mike Campbell's the first person I saw who used them. So I put my mic inside a baffle, you know, on the cone right. and I attenuate everything. I got everything attenuated and, you know, it's not quite as good because you're not moving the cabinet and you're not moving the air as much, but it's the closest live uh, replication that I can get, you know, to what it sounds like in the studio. And, and it's more fun that way. Um, you know, I had to start attenuating. Yeah, I mean, my wife used to be on my right uh, on stage, but now she's on my left. And so she's right in front of my amps and she's five, three. And when she moves from her microphone, um, when, when she moves from her microphone, my amps go right directly into her vocal mic. <laughs> so I had to attenuate after that started happening because that was just giving the sound guy hell. Um, but I normally, the last rig that I had, and it'll probably be pretty similar when we go back out, but I had a 64 vibe reverb <sighs> and a 58 baseman. And I kept those running most of the time. That was like my core tone, you know, because you got the 115, then you got the 410. So frequency range covered. You got the two very different circuits, you know, and that was really... I'd sort of worked my whole career to get that guitar tone. And then of course we toured with it for three months and then. Right. Um, still <laughs> and then bum, 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 bum. Yes. <laughs> um, 
but then I also I have a one of the newer magnetone uh, combos up there, and then uh, a, a deluxe. Um, you know, just to switch out that basic clean tone, uh, and then the magnetone kind of does a Marshally thing. You know, that's their little like. I think I was using the no. You know what I was using was the stereo. Uh, Twilighter for that, yeah, yeah, yeah. For that awesome Alani Mac tone of doom. Yes, it's so it's so fun. Yeah, almost like a B three or something. You know, yeah, the yeah, yeah. But so you switch it before between those different things. Do you, do you goose those those amps, or you're it's mostly power amp gain, or are you using a little screaming kickbox every now and again? I I get them just to where you know they're breaking up, just to that point. Most amps is somewhere between four and six, right? You know, and I keep the bass low. I, I'm I'm a treble treble guy all day. I can't hear it, so I turn it all the way up. You know, um, and bright then, switch or no bright switch? No bright switch. No right. bright switch. No, right. not a crazy person, Greg. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no bright switch, man. Come on, uh, I, I got a therapist. I don't need a bright switch. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, my my tech, Michael Bethencourt. Um, he he's really good. When we got him, he was he had been working with uh, uh, Dan and Ron from Allison Krauss's band. So he'd been doing, you know, mostly pre-war Martins and and miking and tuning and working on old acoustics. And but he's an electric guitar player and he's built a bunch of rigs over the years. And so he built me a rig that's a lot like the Bob Bradshaw thing, um, you know, and it just switches between signal paths. So I just right. as a singer makes all the difference in the world because I can hit one button and get a sound and then get another button and get another sound. And I don't have to tap dance while I'm trying to sing, (laughs) you know, and part of uh, the floor show. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I like when somebody can do it. Well, I am impressed by, um, you know, like, uh, was it Cedric from, uh, uh, Oh, what was that? What was that crazy, uh, math rock band? Um, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the, uh, he's he's got the 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 Ernie Ball butterfly guitar now. Um, uh, anyway, when I, I see when I see somebody who's got like fifty pedals and they're singing and playing and they're they're doing all it's I'll, I'm I'm impressed, but I can't I can't handle it. I need to hit one pedal, you know. And then I usually I've got a Klon uh, Centaur that I got quite a few years ago. Not enough years ago for it to be right. cheap. Thing, but but before they got really insane um and then uh, i use a bunch of chase bliss stuff i love the chase bliss pedals and um i've got a uh analog man um that sun lion the fuzz and the beano boost in one pedal oh, okay that thing is a beast because it's like it's one of those cleanup fuzz so when you get right. on the next pickup and roll off it just sparkles yes that's a glorious tone yeah, it is. It's like the it's like the old Mark 1.5. It's like the the Zeppelin, you know, yeah. park the law in one spot, roll the volume knob off, and just kill everybody dead. Um, right. But probably 20 years ago, when I was in the drive by truckers, we were on tour with the Black Crows, and Mark Ford was playing guitar with them. And Mark had his his he had a a case for an amp head, but inside it he had dry ice and germanium diode fuzz pedals. And he kept going dry ice so he didn't get too hot on this summer tour. And 
Yeah, and his his crew was like, I don't know why we got to put these damn pedals in this ice box every night. This is the most ridiculous thing. But you know, that's how Mark liked it, and he he gave me that pedal, that uh, Sun Lion, and then many years later, uh, I had to send it back to Mike. Uh, for repairs, Mike said, "This is the first one I made." And I was like, "Oh shit! Don't tell Mark that." You know, <laughs> the first I had the first one, and I didn't pay a dime for it. Mark just gave it to me, you know, when I was a kid, basically. Um, and I used that a lot. That's a great pedal. Sounds Isn't it good. amazing how many of those old tones are that people are think of as just you know overdrive, but most of those iconic tones were fuzz driven, and sometimes they were fuzz with the volume rolled back to get this clean but yet a little bit of hair on it. It's it's yeah. an amazing thing. Most people you know they plug into like a new fuzz of some sort, and it sounds like a angry AM radio of some sort, and they're like, forget this. Uh-huh. They don't realize that there's all kinds of all kinds of grease underneath that hood if you get into it. Yeah, there's a learning curve on those. You know, you got to spend time with those fuzz pedals because it's not just to hit a button and it sounds good. It's which I love because it's like it's like a happy accident. Like all the different things those pedals do that they weren't really designed to do. Right. Um, and then like the 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 Clyde McCoy, the picture wah. You know, when I got the the burst, I called Dave Cobb first, and Dave was like, "Meet me at the studio." So we went to RCA and David pulled out all of his Marshalls and all of his little Supro amps and his Clyde McCoy wah. And we just went through, you know, from Zeppelin two to Zeppelin three, we went through every, all those tones that, you know, we had just lusted over all those years. And a lot of them were just, just park the wah in one spot, you know, or kick it on for the solo. Don't, don't do this with it. Just leave it still, you know, it's really fun, really fun. I'll tell you what, old page. You know, I still am a I'm still a sucker for listening to old bootlegs. I still listen to them all yeah. the time. You know, YouTube has just been this uh, great bonanza of going and listening to old like entire tours. A buddy of mine when I was a kid, he was he used to send away and get cassettes of like every Zeppelin tour. He had every night in various oh. different you know, sonic um, <laughs> destruction as far as the quality is concerned. But nowadays, people remaster this stuff, and it actually sounds great. And some of those, some of those are truly incendiary. Listen yeah. to that stuff. When all those guys were on at the same time, right. there was just yeah, it was like it was like an army marching over everything in the world. I mean, speaking of which, uh, I saw an interview with Robert Plant, and he's a big fan of yours. That's got to be wild. It's really, really wild and really cool. Like he, uh, I had met him when he was doing like a little Americana thing. He and Alison Krauss were doing some stuff together. He came and sang at a, um, our award show here in Nashville. And I met him that night. And then years later, we were playing a festival in, uh, in Canada, but it's been about two or two and a half years ago. And, and Robert and his band were playing like a week later, but he showed up a week early to, to do rehearsals there. And he was going to start his tour from that spot. And he came out to our set and came backstage before our set came up in my trailer and, and he and the band hung out and we talked for a long time. And then during the set, I looked down and he's just standing right in front of me in the front row of the audience, the whole set. He just stands right in the center, in the middle of the front row, right directly in front of me watching the show and you know luckily i was able to like put it out of my mind and right. do the job. you know you know i like that sort of thing but still it right. was the, 
weirdest feeling in the world because like there is Robert Plant standing right in front of me watching my concert right now. Right. It was bizarre. It was so, so weird. And, you know, he came backstage after and was super sweet. And he gave my bass player so many, many compliments that, you know, he, he still hasn't come back down from that. It was really moving. And, you know, not too long after that, we did this thing with, with Walsh, with Joe Walsh in Houston oh, yeah. for his vet's aid charity, you know, and I took the red eye with me. And because I knew going out to hang out with Joe, Billy Gibbons was there, ZZ Top played. I'm like, I'm taking this guitar. Right. Finally, I'm taking this guitar to these guys. And I was playing in the hotel room and uh, with my little Yamaha practice amp, you know, and and Joe's son, Christian, uh, who's a good friend, he texts me, is that you making all that noise over there? And I said, yeah, man, I'm sorry. It was 1.30 in the morning. He said, no, 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 dad's getting out of bed. You got to, you got to bring it over. So, I, Joe gets up out of bed, takes pajamas off, puts his street clothes on. And when I walk in, he's warming up, you know, and I, I bring the guitar in. He's got his little practice amp there. And, and he plays the red eye for a while. He'd never, he'd never seen it because, you know, it, it had been here in Nashville at Ed's house for a long, long time. Ed didn't take it out with him and travel and stuff. And, and Joe played it and he was just, you know, amazed and, and, you know, looking at how sharp the headstock was and, you know, loved everything about it. And then I was like, so I got to ask, you got to tell me the page story. You got to tell me about giving Jimmy the Les Paul. I have to hear it from you, you know, he said, I'll tell you, you know, so he went through the whole thing and, and he said they were touring. James gang was opening for Led Zeppelin on Led Zeppelin one first time Led Zeppelin had played in, in the U S and he said the audience was yelling out for Yardbird songs and it was driving Jimmy crazy because they wanted him to play a Yardbird set. And Jimmy had the telly that he'd gotten from Beck. And uh, um, he said, I need a Les Paul, but they're gone. There's not any of them in London, you know, because Keith had played one on TV and the Beano record and and obviously all those you know, everybody bought all the Les Pauls and it was like 1969. They hadn't made any more Les Pauls. And, uh, um, so Joe said, well, if you'll, if you'll buy my plane ticket and the guitars plane ticket, uh, I'll bring you one of mine. I have two and I'll bring you one of mine. And, and that's what Paige did. And that became the number one. That was the one that Paige played all that time. And, you know, it's like, that's, that's unbelievable. You know, that's, that's it from the from the horse's mouth. From the horse's mouth. Yeah. Of course, Joe Walsh just a glorious individual. That that old James Gang stuff is just it's delightful. So killer! It's so good that a trio playing that kind of music and oh yeah, that the way he mixed his influences. Nobody ever sounds like Joe Walsh. You can't, right. you can't replicate it, much less before he came on. There was yeah, unique. Joe Walsh is a unique musician. Yes, indeed, he is. I'm a large fan of his activities. Yeah, I watched a, uh, a glorious video of, of you finishing your set on some, some concert you were doing with your, uh, your latest ensemble. Um, and you guys did a version of whipping post and oh, uh, yeah. it was, it was glorious. And, and Sadler's a great guitar player as well. Very tasty, great tones. And uh, I enjoyed that immensely. So how did that work out that you decided to started doing that tune? Well, you know, I grew up playing those songs uh, in in Muscle Shoals, and and that's what everybody covered at parties and you know at, at bars and whatever. We covered all those songs, and uh, uh, yeah, so it's just it's one that I have known since 
I was 11 or 12, which really comes in handy with those Allman Brothers tunes because, you know, you can't just like jump in and play like Elizabeth Reed or, you know, right. you can't just, oh yeah, we'll just cover that. We we don't need to rehearse that. You know, you get up there and you're like three notes in and you're like, oh, I should have gone over it. I should have right. worked What's this out What's the diminished thing again? Yeah. Yeah. That should have worked this out before. Um, but that was, you know, that was kind of the, sort of the litmus test for musicians where I was at growing up is, is, you know, we'll give you some time to solo and see if you can actually construct something or if you're just going to wank for six minutes. And, you know, that was just, that's what we always did. Like, all right, this kid's supposed to be pretty good. Let's play whipping post. Let's see if he's any good or not. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. But then of course, you know, somebody on Twitter pointed out that that's probably not the most, uh, that I probably shouldn't be singing that song because it's you really don't exactly feel like you're tied to a whipping post. It's kind right. of right. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I never thought about that. So that's the last time we did it. It's like there's plenty of other good Almond Brothers songs that. It's that funny we, you should say that because we we did that. <laughs> we were playing at one of our live streams here, and I'm singing that song, and my wife comes in. She's like, Yeah, right. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that's not a good metaphor for. My heart is broken. You're right. So, yeah. You're right. Glad somebody let me know. You know, I'm not going to be the guy that's like, oh, it's just a song. Screw you. I'm still, no, it's cool. There's other songs we can cover. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty active on the old Twitter. I see you on there and uh, and engaging in a yeah. variety of different things. And uh, you and David Crosby seems to communicate quite a bit on there as well. We do, yeah. Cro Crosby's funny. He's. I like him so much because... Uh, you know, there's no, he's not kissing anybody's ass. Crosby, no. tell you exactly how he feels about whether, whether it's a joint you just rolled or a, you know, song you just sent to him. Right. If he doesn't like it, he will say, this is bad. And I do not like this and you should stop making music. And it makes me so, so happy. Um, and he's really, he's turned into a sweet old dude, you know, and, uh, He's the honesty that he has with everybody else. He has with himself too, which is, that's what I really appreciate about it. You know, he, he, he holds himself to a high standard at this point in his life and he hasn't always, and he's somebody who'll say, you know, I made a ton of mistakes and somehow miraculously survived. And here I am getting to be an old man, you know, hang out in California with my family. And uh, yeah, I, I really, I think a lot of David, I do. And, and he came and sang on my most recent records. So at one point, you know, me and my wife, Amanda and David were, you know, standing around a microphone and in the studio singing harmony. And I was like, this is it. I got right. to, I got to, to go back to the time I wanted to go back to, you know, I actually well, I'll tell you what, he still got it. I saw him, um, on one of his later tours and my buddy, Jeff Pivar plays guitar with him. So Jeff's got great. us into the show and we got to hang out and Jeff, Jeff is magnificent. And I was amazed. I mean, the show, um, I mean, his singing was great. The tunes were great. The harmony. I mean, it was definitely not, uh, distinctly not a tribute act of his former self. You know what I mean? It was yeah. definitely like, I'm still reaching for stuff. And his, I was amazed his voice was, was angelic. It's so strong. It's so, yeah. I, I, I'm the guy who will ask that question. Like, like, you know, I don't mean to be an ass here, but how is that possible? How do you still sound like that? I remember very old and you've got somebody else's liver, you know, like how right. is this? <laughs> and, uh, and he, David said, I don't know. 
I don't know. I did everything I could to kill it, but it still works. So I figure I got to use it as much as I can. And and it's a beautiful thing. Like just sitting next to him, you know, when you're working on a part or something and hearing him saying it's, it's shocking. Like the first time it happened, I did not expect that kind of power to come out of David Crosby. He's still got it. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Old Twitter is, uh, and, you know, social media in general is, uh, is very interesting to say the least. But I, what I find is, um, you know, I, I don't tend to engage in a variety of different subjects on there, but I do enjoy when, you know, people put some interesting musical content on there and it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, just a, it's an interesting thing where, you, you know, at this day and age, you know, I, I find that, um, you know, as much as, as you get older, you, you find people that your age are a little bit older, like, oh, kids these days, they don't understand. I'm like, I don't know. This is kind of the golden age of learning and creating stuff because uh, first you have you have access to everything. I mean, remember when we used to read like Guitar Player Magazine or something like that, and you'd read about, you know, say you're reading up on Albert Lee, and he's mentioning Jimmy Bryant and Hank Garland and, you know, and James Burton and these people, and you're like, well, I'd like to get those records, but yeah, that's not going to happen. And now you can read any one of these things and, and anyone's influence is just go on YouTube and either someone has uploaded the the audio or there's video of these people playing and so on and so forth. And then there's the fact that there's no middleman that if you're if you create content and put it online, anyone can see it. So it's yeah. it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. That, you know, of course, it would I would like to have more money. So it would be nice if people bought records, right. but this is not the world that I live in. So I'm not going to go yell at the clouds about it. You know, it, it, the business is different, but the actual creative process behind the business is really at a beautiful, beautiful spot because, you know, like I can, I can spend all day watching Danny Gatton videos. Right. You know, when I was 12 years old, I had to spend months trying to find one Danny Gatton video to watch until the VHS wore out, you know. And now I can just click on my computer and watch it all day long. And then when I get good enough, I can just put it up online. And there there are people that are, you know, making a living this way. Um, So, yeah, it obviously there are good things and bad things to you know, music and creativity and the business and all that changing. But I see a lot of positives, a whole lot. And I can find every Friday, new music comes out. My daughter, who's five years old, listens to the playlist every Friday, new music Friday, you know, and she gets exposed to all this. When I was five years old, you know, all I had were my parents' records and what happened to me on the radio station. And luckily my parents had good records, but, you know, I wasn't hearing the new like Rosalia track, you know, I wasn't hearing something in, in, you know, a foreign language that I thought, Oh, this is cool. I think I'm going to look up what she's talking about. And then all of a sudden you're learning another language. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for taking time today. An absolute pleasure to get to talk with you and pick your brain a little bit on all things. And I uh, hope you had a good old time. I hope to see you in person one of these days. Man, I would I would love that. I think we'll be back on the road one of these days sometime. I don't know when, but I'll be happy whenever it does happen. But yeah, great to talk to you. I love your playing and I, I love your, you know, demoing and instructing. Um, you know, I just, I think you're just a really great addition to the guitar community in general. Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot. Thank you. It's awesome to have you out there doing the good work. And thanks for talking to me. Oh, my pleasure. Well, thanks for hanging with us and we'll see you soon. Take care of yourself. Have a great day, Greg. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon. <laughs>